I, I think that was like the first step I took. I actually went all the way through the entire interview process without applying for the job at all. We're changing directions. Well, this is a terrible direction. Like, <laughs> can you change it to another direction? Quite frankly, I always keep myself open opportunities. This is Chan with The Plan, the podcast, a podcast providing career advice and easy, actual steps for frustrated professionals, helping you overcome career challenges so you stop feeling confused and defeated and start feeling focused and confident in order to excel in your career. I'm your host, Max Chan. Now let's dive into the episode. Hey, Sean, welcome to the show. Hey, how's it going? Happy to be here, Max. How was your new year so far? Pretty good. Started a brand new job January 3rd at the start of the new year. That's been very exciting (laughs) joining this organization. So I feel like it definitely is a new year, new me sort of deal. Yeah, you're definitely living the phrase new year, new you, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's actually a great segue into our conversation for today. So the reason I brought you on, Sean, is I found your post on LinkedIn. It just popped on my newsfeed about how you were able to start a job search and get a new job within 30 days. And going back to the new you, a lot of people are looking to move jobs or switch careers during this time, whether it's like New Year's resolutions or just wanting to start something different. So I think this is a good timing of our conversation. And hopefully you can share some strategies and tips in how you had a successful job search and they could take some of those tactics to improve their job search as well if they are looking at this moment. So before we dive in, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself in regards to your career journey so far? Yeah, yeah. So a little bit of background. I'm a veteran myself. I joined the Navy immediately out of high school. I know this seems pretty irrelevant, but it really sets the stage for how I've learned to approach searching for a new job. So I joined the military immediately out of high school. I was what they would call a hospital corpsman, which is essentially a battlefield medic, but specifically for the Marines. The seven years in, decided I wanted to get out and absolutely none of my training or certifications I received transferred into the outside world. So there was no like leaving the military, jumping immediately into essentially the same career, just in the private sector. So, you know, like a lot of folks who that happens to, I had a sort of like existential crisis where I had to figure out what I want to be when I grow up. How do I go about doing that? At the time, the military didn't necessarily do a great job preparing folks on how to translate their skills, write a resume, show up for interviews. Here are the basics and, you know, good luck. So I fumbled around in the dark a little bit, trying to figure out like how to get a job. Did a, what I like to call spraying and praying, just applying for a ton of jobs indiscriminately, not tailoring my resume, just basically like throwing everything against the wall to see what sticks. And that was a extremely long, extremely painful process, really jaded me in terms of being able to find a career, you know, it just like negatively impacted me all the way around, took down my self-worth and how I like viewed my professional skill sets and my experiences and how they were relevant to the outside world. So I ended up deciding to go to school, ended up breaking into sales while working at Apple, did business development, account management work with them. And I was getting ready to move from Seattle to the San Francisco Bay Area. And I knew that the possibility of me transferring jobs wasn't that great. They had a very limited head count for the team that I was trying to transfer on and there weren't any open opportunities available. So I was just going to go right back to what I was doing, you know, spraying and praying, apply for any job that was out there. And this guy I worked with named Marty Hovis, we were talking about finding new jobs. He was in the market for a new job himself or getting ready to look for a new job. And I said something along the lines of, yeah, I'm just going to, you know, get out there, start applying for every single job I can to see, you know, if I can land any interviews. 
And he said something to me along the lines of, you don't want to like look for a job unless you're going to do it the right way. And like that, like clicked something in my mind. And like from that point, I sort of realized that there might be a little bit more to finding a job than just going on career builder, going on Indeed and just applying, like I said, indiscriminately to every single role out there. So I began like reaching out to people who were already like masters at their own sort of expertise, people who were at job levels that I envisioned seeing myself. I started reaching out to different recruiters. I started leveraging LinkedIn a lot, consuming a ton of content, doing as much research as possible to sort of like craft and formulate how to find a job. And through that process, I ended up landing at my very first startup, Shift.org, which was in the career services field. So it's perfect. Like right when I started sort of really becoming obsessed with how to find a career, I landed a job that was essentially how can we take that process and scale it out to all individuals? So I did that for a couple of years, moved over to a business development role at a company called Spaces, which was a queer social media app. And once again, found myself like leveraging all of the sort of experience I've had in terms of trying to find a new job. Like as a startup, you know how it is when you work at startups, it's pretty risky. It's not a large enterprise level organization. There's a lot of benefits, but you know, there are inherent risks of working at a startup. For us, <laughs> we weren't an immediate revenue generating product. So towards, I actually joined as a contract employee with the expectation that it would convert to a full-time job, but somewhere around October-ish, mid-October-ish, we started running out of financial runway and we start to like lay people off, let people go from the team. And at that point, I was informally like, <laughs> I like to consider it like informally let go because it wasn't like, hey, we have to part ways right now. It was more like, hey, uh, we don't have any money to pay you, but we want you to stay on and continue, you know, more or less in the job function that you're in right now. So I agreed to do that, stuck that out for October and then was in my mind trying to figure out like, are we going to get more funding? Are they going to be able to like bring me back on a salary, start weighing pros and cons, looking at the entire job landscape that was out there. And then come the second week of November 11th, I want to say November 10th, November 11th, that week, I was like, okay, for sure, time to find a new job. And so I just took all of the practices that I've learned over time and put them in place and was able to drive towards a successful outcome within like pretty much a month's period of time. And that's including a week long break for Thanksgiving. Wait, hold on. So you're saying like, oh, we can't pay you, but we want you to stay on. So you were working for free for a bit until hopefully they got funding so they could pay you and put you back on salary? Yeah, yeah, that was the goal. Because we were in the middle of fundraising. We had a WeFunder going where we we're essentially trying to crowdfund our continued existence. And it wasn't as successful as we would have hoped, considering the economic climate out there at the time. And I think our CEO, if I'm not mistaken, Christoph Whittings, super swell guy, incredible, passionate entrepreneur. I think they are still fundraising as we speak. But at the time, you know how it is, where it's like, well, as much as I love a job, at the end of the day, I still have to keep a roof over my head and love the mission. But I also love not being homeless. So, <laughs> yeah. so you like, also ah, love paying your bills, right? <laughs> yeah, okay. This is unsustainable. So you started your job search, like you said, like a little bit around or after Thanksgiving, right? No, before, before Thanksgiving. Before, before, oh, uh, before, okay. Like the week of like November 11th. I went back and looked at a couple of notes. And this is like when I 100% started hardcore searching for jobs where I like made my mind up that I'm going to look for a new job. 
Before then, because I'm on LinkedIn, quite frankly, I always keep myself open to opportunities, not necessarily like on my profile where recruiters can reach out to me. But if I see a job or see a company that's doing something interesting, I'm always going to like check them out a little bit more, try to form some connections and relationships with people that work there. Just in case an opening pops up at the organization that's aligned with my skill set, then I can, you know, have a warm introduction into their ecosystem and hopefully get hired. But came like the second week of November rolled around and that's when I was like, okay, well, for sure, like starting now, and I gave myself a deadline. I was like, I'm going to have a new job. It was a ridiculous deadline, but I gave myself a deadline. I was like, I'm going to have a new job by December. And I didn't necessarily have it 100% by the 1st of December. I think it was like a week or two into the month where I finally was more or less I had an offer ready at the table. So it's interesting that you job search like so late in the year because there's a lot of advice out there saying that November, December are the worst times to job search because like everybody's on holiday. There's not a lot of budget remaining. People are just like trying to close out the year. I'm assuming that you've also heard this type of advice as well. So how did you push past through that instead of saying, okay, I, I know the job market is usually pretty slow during this time, but I'm going to try anyway. Yeah, I leveraged my best friend in the entire world, Google. <laughs> so working in tech, I knew that there were a ton of layoffs happening in tech. So I really did a deep dive into different industries that were where I could find tech adjacent organizations that were still ramping up and doing hiring. And an article I read showed that, you know, there are a couple of key verticals that were sort of evergreen in terms of hiring. And some of them actually doubled down on hiring towards the end of the year just for the sake of using their budget before the new year starts. And nonprofits, which is a company, the organization I work for now is a nonprofit. MPOs were one of them. So like along with MPOs, a couple of other industries, I really narrowed my job search to industries that I knew for a fact were still churning out new job recs and onboarding new people. And I think that was like the first step I took because you're on LinkedIn. Every day is a bloodbath. It's like, unfortunately, I was let go like every week. Every day is just like nonstop in your feed. So I knew that trying to nail down a role specifically at in tech, at larger tech organizations, legacy tech organizations, even you know unicorns and startups that hit a certain point in their series funding. I knew that though I didn't want to pigeonhole myself into that particular sector, knowing that the odds were going to be against me. So I just had to broaden my search to industries I knew were going to hire and like identify different organizations within those industries that were aligned with what I was looking for. To dive more into that, so you were doing that research before you started your job search and you're looking at evergreen industries that would hire pretty heavily during November, December. How did you like nail down those industries and how did you know that you had transferable skills from your tech background into these industries? Yeah, yeah, that's a really good question. So I did a ton of Googling, read a bunch of articles on Business Insider, Forbes, and almost every single article had like different things to say, different perspectives. You know, there are different writers, different organizations, different. They're looking at the market overall through a different lens. But there were recurring industries and recurring sectors that kept popping up in all those lists. So from there, I took those sort of industries, those sectors. I would Google what companies are like tech related that fell underneath those. And then I would just start researching using Crunchbase. TechCrunch, LinkedIn, Built-in, which is a great website, when, especially if you look for different startups. And I was using that weight against the different types of roles that I knew for a fact I was targeting. So I think in that LinkedIn post, I mentioned that I was targeting three specific job functions. Uh, there were sales, 
customer success and recruiting. So very specific job titles I was looking after were customer success manager, account executive. And I think at one point I was looking for sales development representative manager because I thought that was interesting. And then recruiter. And then from that list I developed, I would essentially like cross-reference that with every organization that I would research and look up until I found a fit. And once I found a fit, that's when I would apply for the job. Yeah, like you made a good point about like having a target job search approach. A lot of professionals dealing for a new opportunity, they'll have a very general resume. And then like you said, during your younger days, you would just spray and pray hoping for the best and they don't usually get the results they want. But for you, you nailed down the industries, you nailed down the three roles, as you mentioned, and then you made a resume tailored towards like each role, right? Yeah, exactly. So I created a master template for each of those respective organizations. And I knew that I had transferable skills because of the nature of working in startups, you wear a lot of hats, you perform a lot of job functions. You come in as an account executive and you end up doing the role of marketing, business development, customer success, recruiting. And so what I would do is I created three specific resumes that fell underneath those three different disciplines. And I extracted all of the relevant information and job functions and responsibilities and things that I had accomplished wearing each of those hats and created a resume specifically for them. And I would say that with things like sales and customer success, it's really easy because for the most part, every single sales and customer success job, they're all looking for the exact same like core competencies, core qualifications and requirements. There's only a handful where they ask for very specific experience. And if I had that experience, I would make sure to tailor my resume, add in a couple of experience bullets, whatever, to really highlight that I was capable of executing that function. So you have like your master resume with like, a whole bunch of bullet points, and then you would segment them out based off the position, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I would have my sort of talent acquisition resume, my customer success resume, and then my sales resume. And then if I had anything that, if I found a job that required a little bit more specification on either of those umbrellas, then I would create another resume <laughs> and really specify the experiences that I had that made me a relevant candidate. And just doing some quick math here, what was the response rate from applying to these jobs with that targeted resume that you had? Was it like a lot it was higher than if you did general? Yeah, yeah. I'm not going to lie to you. It was pretty good. Like out of all the jobs I applied for, which was well over 15, I heard responses from over half of them. And I will say that what really helped me was the fact that I wouldn't just apply for a job. I would apply for the job and try to find any sort of human connection that can create an inroad, a path into the organization that I could. So for example, this current job that I landed, I saw the job, I applied for it, I looked up the director, and I just sent them a message. I was like, hey, you know, I'm new to Tulsa, saw this job opportunity, really love what you're doing, would love to stay connected as you continue to build out your team and your organization. And she responded, director, Megan, responded almost immediately. I was like, hey, thank you for reaching out. Thank you for the pleasant note. I'll make sure to like push your information or let our recruiting team that you apply for the role. It looks like you have a pretty good background. And I want to say like the day after or the day after that day, like two days later, within that ballpark, I had a call from the recruiter. Yeah, that's awesome because a lot of professionals, they don't like to do the networking portion aspect. Of, they don't want to do the networking portion of it. They just want to apply online and wait for them to call. But you took that proactive approach and tried to find like the potential hiring manager. And then you reached out to them and then she liked the message and they ended up pushing you forward. Yeah, yeah. I find that, you know, I think hiring managers, every hiring manager that I've ever spoken to, there's even a LinkedIn post recently where this person 
he was a hiring manager. He was like, hey, I posted this job. I had over 200 applicants out of the 200, like 18 reached out to me personally. So a very like small amount of individuals who apply for jobs actually do the legwork, find a hiring manager, which is incredibly easy on LinkedIn. Like LinkedIn has a great search filter. <laughs> like, they make it really easy to find who you need to talk to. But I find that either people don't want to reach out to individuals at the organizations they're applying to altogether, or number two, they're reaching out specifically to recruiters, which like I have conversations with recruiters all the time. As a matter of fact, I'm on a team full of recruiters. And just recently I was talking to one of my colleagues and I was like, you know, as a recruiter, I'm sure people like hit you up all the time on LinkedIn. And she was basically like, yeah, my inbox is flooded. Everybody's reaching out to me as a recruiter, hoping that I can like push their resume to the top of the funnel. But the reality is that I have my own job recs that I have to manage. I have applicants, <laughs> like hundreds of people applying to those job recs. And so I don't necessarily have the bandwidth to go through my LinkedIn inbox and read every single message and then try to respond to every single person. So I think what happens is that a lot of people assume like the recruiter has to be the first line of defense. That has to be the first like obstacle they have to get by. So they immediately want to reach out to them and they just simply don't have the bandwidth. Whereas people rarely reach out to hiring managers because for lack, I, don't, I have no idea why, but either there's a couple of like assumptions where they think that hiring managers are going to get back to them or they just don't know how to find them. Yeah, you make a good point. Like I always tell professionals that, hey, if you're reaching out to people at companies that have job postings, you don't reach out to the recruiter because they are going to get bombarded by tons of messages. You're better off reaching out to the hiring manager, one level above the hiring manager or even a peer. They're probably going to at least consider you because they don't get as many messages compared to recruiter, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And then you also said like in your LinkedIn post that most of the interviews you got was because you sent that message. Can you tell us more about that? Oh yeah, 100%. Almost every single interview that I had was the result of me reaching out to a hiring manager. So a great example would be this guy named Mike Boyle from a company called True Video. He posted on LinkedIn that they were looking for account executives, their product and solution was something that really resonated with me. Like he told a really compelling story in his LinkedIn post and commented on it and then sent him a connection request with a little note like, hey, I saw you were hiring for this opportunity. Like here's why I'm interested in it. And I would love to have like a conversation with you. And he responded, asked me a couple of questions very next day or the day after, gave me a call, had an interview. I actually... <laughs> went all the way through their entire interview process without applying for the job at all. Like I didn't even fill out an application. It really just goes to show you that sometimes you you just have to talk to people. It's one of, in my opinion, one of the best avenues to really accelerate your career searches, trying to get on a horn with an actual human being. And one of the things that people love to ask me is, how do I get these people to talk to me? And the fact of the matter is that I'm not just hitting up random people and saying, hey, this is my background, hire me. I really like to approach it from a place of curiosity, genuine interest. I try to find any overlapping experiences from their LinkedIn that you know match mine so I can have help anything to help me build rapport, whether that's, hey, you know somebody who works at a company that a friend of mine works at, which actually happened. I reached out to a hiring manager and he ended up working at a company where a friend of mine worked. And I said, oh, by the way, do you know this guy? And I was like, oh, yeah, me and him worked very closely together. And like we went back and forth about our connection, our mutual connection. Next day, interview from the recruiter. So it really is a matter of, you know, identifying 
who you need to speak to is one thing, but being able to convey sincerity, being able to come from a place where you're seeking to understand, where you're genuinely curious. And if you're able to find any overlapping experiences that tie you a little bit closer together, that makes it even better and easier to sort of jumpstart that rapport. Yeah, absolutely. So it's not like sending out a message saying, hey, I applied this job. Here's my resume. If you didn't see it, it's more about like, hey, I'm very interested in this position and this company. I would like to learn more about it. As you said, you want to ignite the curiosity aspect of it and show genuine interest. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's more of that, like just really trying to discover, you know, what team are you trying to build? What have you built? I would love to learn about you know, what you're driving towards. And I think something that really resonates with people is being brutally honest and vulnerable and admitting that, you know, finding a job, there's two layers of expectations, the expectations that an employer has for a candidate and the expectations that a candidate has for a potential employer. So really leveraging the fact that, hey, you're at a place where I think I want to go, but I don't want to waste anybody's time, mine, any members of your teams. So I would love to have a conversation to figure out if this is the place where I want to toss my hat in the ring before actually doing so. And I think that resonates with a lot of people. It shows that you're very thoughtful. You have very specific intent for the conversation. And you're not just somebody who's out there applying for anything and everything. It's showing that you legitimately have an interest and you're trying to take it a step further to understand if it's going to be a mutual fit. In terms of finding the right people to reach out to, obviously, like the bigger the company, the more people there are. How did you like find out who the hiring manager was? Or did you send a couple of messages to a couple of people or a few people and just see like, hey, I saw this posting. I was wondering if you're the hiring manager. So how do people like pinpoint the right person to reach out to? The right person to reach out to, how do you do that? It depends on the size of the organization, but I think LinkedIn makes it relatively easy. So for example, if I was looking for an account executive role, I would type in sales manager or sales director, anything with a leadership, sort of a leadership sales title in a search bar. I would click people and then that would drop, pull up everybody with that sort of title, right? And then there's another filter where you can add in company. So then I would add in that specific company where the role is. So I would add in Apple and then pull up all the sales directors from Apple. And then I would take it a step further. I would go to all filters because I'm a veteran. And I know that one thing veterans love to do is help create job opportunities for other veterans. So I went in and I went to past companies and I entered in all the military branches <laughs> just to see on the off chance, like, is anybody in a position of influence that happens to be a veteran? whether they are specifically in sales or just a manager in general. And then if none of that worked, I would just look at the list that I have pulled up in front of me based on the company, job title, and just scroll through and figure out, okay, which of these individuals is the person that I need to be reaching out to? And like I said, depending on the size of the organization, sometimes you have to just like make a guess. If you're searching for the director of sales at like, I don't know, Google or some crazy enterprise level organization, you're probably going to find like dozens of people who have that title. So it's about taking this up further, figure out, okay, well, who's in the exact vertical that this job is in? If it's something like a smaller startup, then chances are there aren't going to be like a dozen sales managers. There maybe be one or two and then like a director or something. So being able to pinpoint exactly who that is would be a little bit easier for organizations with a headcount, I would say under like 200, 250, something like that. But for everything else, you just have to go through the profiles, take a nice casual scroll and try to use it as an educated guess. 
Great. So just to summarize your process in job searching in terms of applying, so you would obviously do your research, find companies you're interested in, you find roles that you're interested in or aligned to what you're looking for. And then at that point, you would apply first. Then your next step would be to go to like LinkedIn, find people that work at the company in that vertical that you're trying to get into yourself, and then send some DMs to these people showing genuine interest and trying to get them on a phone conversation to learn more about the role and then how you can help them. And then that is usually how you increase your interview response rate. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And then there's other like nuances that go into it as well because of the job market. It's funny, like earlier today, I was reading an article that was like hybrid work is here to stay. And I remember like a year ago, the big headlines were remote work is here to stay. So I was like, okay, so everything's trending in a completely opposite direction. And I started reading a little bit more about remote work trends and how companies, more and more companies are wanting a hybrid situation versus 100% remote. So I realized that I didn't want to exclusively look for remote roles because everything that I was reading was telling me that it's trending towards the exact opposite, it's trending towards hybrid. So I had to open up my job search from exclusively remote to things that were on site or hybrid as well. I think that one particular article that I read said something along the lines of for every like one remote opportunity that's posted, there are like 10 hybrid roles and then like 20 like on-site roles. But that one remote role has like 90% of all the candidates applying to it because nobody wants to do hybrid. Nobody wants to go back on site. So I realized that if I wanted to be successful, I had to deviate from wanting to be exclusively remote And funny enough, I started searching for hybrid work and this company that I work at now, the job opportunity was listed as hybrid, but it's actually more remote than hybrid. It's like we have an office, you can utilize it as a tool, almost like a WeWork, but it's not a requirement. So I ended up getting really lucky just from the fact that I expanded my search from being exclusively remote to other opportunities out there. Yeah. And like, that's no surprise. Like a lot of remote work, a lot of remote postings have decreased since the pandemic. And then there's a lot of news about like RTO returning to the office. I think Starbucks yeah. recently said that they're going to now force people to go at least three times a week before it was like a soft two, but now they're really trying to mandate it to make it three. Yeah. Yeah. And it's crazy. I was just reading an article the other day that was more or less like Apple for the first time in, I don't know, 15 years didn't make Glassdoor's list of best companies to work for. And it's because they require people to come back to the office. So a lot of employees who were surveyed said that they weren't big fans of the mandate for Apple to return to the office. And the more you look at it, all these different organizations, I think Paycom, for instance, just sort of made it mandatory for folks to come in at a certain amount of days out of the week. I think like the power that employees once had over employers during the pandemic is slowly shifting away and reversing. Now, I think employers are gaining a little bit more power, especially in the tech industry, where there have been a ton of layoffs. Now, I think employers have a little bit more power to dictate like the terms of how they want employees to come into the office, how often they want employees to come into the office, rather. Yeah, it's civil economics between supply and demand, right? So, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Civil supply and demand. Yeah, like recession, a lot of layoffs, not a lot of jobs. Hey, if you want to work for us, you have to come a certain amount of days, right? There's not much they can do because someone else will want it. Because again, when there's not a lot of jobs out there, employers do have more of the control at that point. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's exactly what it is, supply and demand. That's a great way of phrasing it. And going back to the hybrid thing, like, what's your opinion in regards to should it be hybrid? Because I've heard studies that it's hard to really build a culture when 
people don't really see each other in person. Like Zoom or Microsoft Teams doesn't really replace like in-person collaboration. So I'm assuming that's why a lot of these big companies are trying to get more people back in the office to get that in-person collaboration and build a company culture again. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's a really good question. So the company I'm at now, the organization I'm at right now in Tulsa, great organization, great mission. Like we are on a path of trying to bring tech companies to Tosa to expand opportunities for our local population so that you don't necessarily have to live in a New York City or a Los Angeles to break into tech or to find a career that has, you know, tons of upward mobility potential. That's my small plug for the company. So so we just had an offsite and I got to meet everybody. We have a couple of folks who aren't local to Tosa. Got to hang out with them all in like one big physical room. I got to say there was great energy there. It was a great energy that I feel like can't easily be replicated. And if you're hosting like a Zoom and there's like five or six people on your team and you're all just kind of like the relationship almost feels static. That said, I think that it depends on the person. I don't like the idea that companies want to mandate people return to work for the fact of a building culture, because I think, number one, anytime you force somebody to do something, that's not a good way to jumpstart building culture where you're giving somebody a hard requirement where you're like, come back to the office or you're fired. Like, that's just a terrible way to jumpstart trying to build your culture, giving somebody a little, an ultimatum. But number two, I think that when things start shifting towards being remote, it created a ton of opportunities for people who were either marginalized or people with disabilities. It just created more accessibility to opportunities that folks necessarily wouldn't have had if they had to come physically into an office. I'm talking about like somebody who is trans and they just started transitioning and they felt like they didn't want to be in a position where they had to go in the office physically and like have to deal with, you know, microaggressions or explaining what's going on. There was like an added layer of comfort and safety with them being able to participate in an organization remotely. Same with people who had accessibility issues. So I feel like creating this broad sort of requirement to have everybody come into the office really disenfranchises people who are already approaching their career from a position of disenfranchisement where they don't necessarily have the power to just pick up and go to any single company that they want because they have so many other considerations to keep in mind. And then number three, I just think that, you know, people after you've been remote and you realize how much time you get back to yourself and how much like money you save not going to the office, these are like tangible things. Well, not necessarily tangible because time is abstract, but these are things that you can feel like every single day. So for instance, When we went completely remote, I got to spend an entire year with my dog. I didn't have to put my dog in the crate for eight hour plus while I commuted to work, did my eight hour day, commuted back. So like that's 10 hours away from them. They're at home. They're lonely. They're bored, whatever. And I got to spend over a year with them every single day. He was an older puppy, about 15, right before we had to, you know, sadly put him to rest because of health issues. And it's like small things like that are what people are realizing is the most important. Like having that time back, even if it's like that hour or two hours that you spend commuting or, you know, the eight hours that you spend away at an office altogether, like having a sense of ownership over your time and being able to manage where your time is spent, like that's a huge benefit for remote work. And the effects are 
you know, improve mental health for some people, better family relationships for some people, just like an overall better lifestyle in general. So yeah, all this to say that I don't think that forcing people to come back to an office unilaterally, regardless of individual circumstances and making that like a hard company policy, I don't think that's necessarily in the best interest of the employee, especially if you're trying to build out culture and long term, the employer itself, because now you have a bunch of people who work for you that resent you. Like, look at Apple, <laughs> like all the people who, who were like, ah, Apple sucks, but I'm still here because I need this paycheck and it's a good job. But like, are you really going to get the performance out of that disgruntled employee that you would have gotten if you would have, you know, met them halfway or met them in the middle or took their needs into consideration? First, probably not. They're not going to be as motivated or as driven because now this is something that they have to do and they feel like they've been strong armed into it. So I don't think that, you know, people say it's to build culture. I don't think it's a great first step in building culture, giving people an ultimatum. Yeah, I think the reputation of a brand can only go so far. Like if you are like strong arming people to do certain things, they might just go for a couple of years for the name, but then they're going to jet as soon as they got the opportunity to. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There are some people who will strategically say like, I will do this job. I will go into the office and I won't like it, but I will have that logo on my resume. And sometimes having that logo on your resume creates even more opportunities. And you give yourself like a timeline where it's like, I'll stuff it out for a year. But after that, I'm out of here. <laughs> Yeah, like it's very rare to see someone at Google for 15 years. I think, yeah, I, yeah, yeah this exactly. Isn't, this isn't like the age of Don Draper, where it's like, oh, I work for this company for, I've been with this company for 15 years, and you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna die working at this company. It's like, nope. At least people my age range, like I'm 38, going on 39. People our age range, like you know, there was economic crisis, the recession, the pandemic, and I think over and over again, we've been taught and shown that companies will always put their interests before the interests of their employees. And it's nothing personal. It is literally just business. <laughs> so I think that has shifted the dynamics of loyalty in the minds of employees where they're like, well, I have to do what's good for me first before what's good for the company. Yeah, absolutely. Like, for example, oh, we're changing company direction, but that's just a way of saying, oh, we have to lay off a certain amount of people, right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. We're changing direction. Well, this is a terrible direction. Like, <laughs> can you change it to another direction? Like, why are we going this way? Layoffs are hard, man. My heart hurts for a ton of people who are getting laid off. My heart really hurts for contractors because they often are just having their contract ended and, and not even fulfilled for however many months they have left on that contract and don't receive any benefits. But like, I have a friend who was just laid off and he's actually the guy at Apple who was like really taught me how to look at finding a job differently. He just got laid off, but he got three months of severance. So instead of him being like, damn, I just got laid off. This sucks. I got three months of severance. In his mind, he's like, wow, I just got laid off. I have three months of severance. If I could find a job like within the next month, I will essentially have double my income for at least two months because now I'm receiving a paycheck from my new job. And I also have this severance sitting in my bank account at the same time. So if you're in that position where you've been laid off, yeah, it sucks, but you get like, I don't know, 16 weeks of severance, 12 weeks of severance. You really have to look at that as like an opportunity, in my opinion, to really figure out, like use it as motivation to say to yourself, okay, if I hurry up and find a job, I am literally going to double my income for a finite number of months, which is also, which is pretty sweet. But then again, I'm coming from the position of a contractor who get absolutely no money. <laughs> so uh, that could be my own biases talking.
And speaking of getting like, new jobs, in your LinkedIn post, you said that you were able to get two job offers. So if someone has the luxury of having multiple job offers to choose from, how did you evaluate the pros and cons of each in order to go for the right one that was best for you at that time? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that ultimately what I went for was the job that was aligned more closely with where I see myself going in the future. I know that there are a ton of people out there who make their job decisions exclusively based off of salary. And that's okay. It's 100% fine. If that's your motivation, that's what you're driven by. But for me, I almost look at any career opportunity that I receive as like one of many moves in a long game of chess. Whereas it's like, okay, if this offer can take me to this potential job in the future and this job can take me to this potential job in the future versus where the journey that I could end up if I take the other offer. So looking at both, I just tried to weigh which one would lead me to the path that closely aligns with ultimately what I see myself doing three years from now, five years from now. And I use that to help inform my decision. Yeah, exactly. Like some people might be short-sighted to just go for the salary, but if the more salary does that give you a good career path or build up your skills for the next career move, then you'll still be stuck in a few years, right? Yeah, no, it's like if I want to be like a sales manager or a director of sales, like am I going to get there faster by going from being an AE to another AE job that has a little bit more base pay? Or am I going to get there from an AE job to some sort of business development manager job that doesn't have the same OTE package, a little bit lower than the other AE job. Like which one of those is going to get me there faster? Yeah, absolutely. And you are obviously was in the tech space, right? And as you know, there's a lot of layoffs right now. What is some advice that you can provide a professional that has been laid off in tech or are in tech, but they're very uncertain about their future because of the recession and a lot of other things? What's your advice to them at this moment? Yeah, I would say the advice is don't limit yourself exclusively to SaaS companies different companies that are like hardly cemented in tech. There are different industries out there that have opportunities of companies that are tech adjacent, where you can still make your mark, find your career and, you know, continue to prosper. I would say on that same note, don't get logo tunnel vision, where if you see a company and you don't recognize the name, you're just like, oh, I'm not going to apply for any job there. It's like, you don't know if that company is going to offer you a great salary on the trajectory financially of that company. You don't know if it's going to be a culture that is a better fit for you. You don't necessarily have to go out and chase like the most well-known brands out there for the sake of just saying that you work at that company. I don't know. Maybe you've seen it on LinkedIn where people are like ex-Google, ex-Facebook. <laughs> yeah, ex-this, ex, 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 ex. like It really doesn't mean anything these days. <laughs> like Every now and then, like I said earlier, there are certain logos that could potentially unlock future opportunities, but that's never a guarantee. And it's not the end all be all, especially when it comes to trying to find personal satisfaction in your role and a little bit of fulfillment. So you have to be able to make sure that you're not approaching your job search with any sort of logo biases and only going after, you know, the well-known companies out there, because doing that, you could possibly skip over the perfect opportunity at a lesser known organization. And on that note, a lot of startups are still hiring. I just read an article the other day. I think it was in Forbes or Business Insider. There are plenty of startups that are still hiring. And they're saying that, you know, it's a huge loss for big tech. But this round of layoffs has been a huge game for smaller startups. 
because now they have like a vast pool of candidates and they don't have to compete against Meta. They don't have to compete against DoorDash because all those people are doing layoffs and are hiring freezes. So look at startups if you haven't considered them. I would say continue to network, leverage your network. I know you hear that all the time on LinkedIn, but it really is incredible. Some of the folks that I reached out or during my job search who helped create opportunities weren't just hiring managers that I didn't know. There are also people at the peer level who are able to submit a referral for me. So reaching out to people that you know and saying, hey, look, <laughs> I'm interested in this role, dude. Can we hop on a call? I want to hear a little bit about your experience with the company before I apply for it. That People are almost always willing to put in a referral for you, especially if you're in some sort of tech industry, because they'll get a bonus or any organization outside of tech, like they'll get a bonus if you're successfully hired and you're like retained for a certain amount of days. So there's a little bit of incentive for people to, to refer you to different opportunities. And then I guess lastly, I would say you have to approach searching for your job like it's a job itself. Like you wouldn't show up day one for your job and just like do a bunch of stuff, not knowing whether or not you're doing it right, whether you're doing it wrong. You're just doing it, going through the motions and hoping and praying to God that at the end of the day, like all of it makes sense and all of it falls in place. Like you wouldn't do that at a job in real life. So you shouldn't do that with your career search. You shouldn't just assume, you know, this is a client success manager job. This is a sales job. I'm just going to apply to all these jobs with one resume, or I'm just going to apply to this job without necessarily understanding the process of how an ATS works or I'm going to reach out to a recruiter without understanding that recruiters have limited bandwidth. Read some articles, Google some stuff, look up how a good resume looks. Uh, I do a ton of resume reviews. I'm not a professional resume writer, but I would say that one of the recurring things that I see from candidates that I don't think people put a ton of effort into are their resumes. I've seen so many bad resumes that are so vague. They almost read like, a job description itself in terms of what you're going to be responsible for versus what you actually accomplished in your role. There's a lot of, you know, real estate taken up on miscellaneous things that are irrelevant. Like I saw a resume one day that had like two paragraphs for summary. I'm like, this is a short essay. Like recruiters aren't going to read those two paragraphs. They're going to go right to your bullets and see if your experience makes sense and give it a, a quick little scan. So trying to Figure out how a good resume looks. If you Google good resumes, if you search on LinkedIn, there are tons of resources out there to help you find all this information. Tons of resources out there that tell you how to reach out to people, how to craft a good LinkedIn message, how to build out a good resume, how to actually search for a job in a method that's more deliberate and exercises a little bit more intent. All this stuff I know. I learned from talking to people and looking it up. <laughs> so like the information is out there. You just have to be willing to approach your job search process. Again, like it is a job itself, do some research into it and figure out how to perform it to the best of your abilities. Yeah, absolutely. And as you said, the main thing that every recruiter looks at is the work experience. But I see so many resumes where they try to dress up different or add like unnecessary sections or make them too long. But yeah. yeah, at the end of the day, the work experience is what matters. Like, don't stuff the resume with a bunch of keywords at the bottom, right? Because that's a yeah, that's yeah, a yeah. Great. So there was one person I was speaking with. They had a great format of the resume, but even like some of the bullets, there's a formula to crafting great bullets where you're not just writing a random sentence as if you are writing a novel where you're like, I worked at, you know, I worked at X company doing this job and this was what I did. It's like, you have to show what you did, the impact of what you did, and the results of what you did. And you have to use anything that's quantifiable to show how well you did the job. 
And you don't necessarily have to be 100% factual with it. I'm not saying go out there and lie and say like close like a million dollars as a sales account executive or whatever. And you know that's lie. But if you haven't been deliberately tracking your metrics, you can always try to, you know, tell a story in a way that demonstrates your abilities, even if that number isn't 100% what you did. Because like I said, you have to have something that quantifies your success. Uh, that's what really stands out to recruiters, at least from my experience. Yeah. If not the exact dollar amount, then ballpark a percentage, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, is anybody really keeping a track of exactly how many phone calls they made per day? I did, of course, because in sales customer success and talent acquisition, you actually have to keep track of all that stuff through either your CRM or your ATS. So like I have the luxury of having numbers where I can look back on and say exactly what I did. But if you're in like a project manager job, I don't know what sort of like programs or tools you use, but like maybe some of the things that you do are a little bit more ambiguous in terms of quantifying data. So you just have to like guesstimate and use your best judgment in a way that accurately reflects your abilities, as well as telling an overall story about how successfully you can execute the roles and responsibilities of the job you're applying for. Yeah, absolutely. And as we wrap up our conversation, as the hour is coming to a close, I like to ask this question to all my guests that come on my podcast. So as you know, my podcast is about helping professionals overcome career challenges to help them get to the next level of their career. So for you, what has been one big career challenge that you had to overcome to get to where you are today? Yeah, one big career challenge I had to overcome was learning how to tell my story. Everything that goes into finding a job, whether that's how you write your resume, how you answer interview questions, it all comes down to how you tell your story and how you're able to take your experiences and present those to a potential employer or an interviewer in a way that resonates with them. I come from a background, like I said, I was in the military for a ton of years, seven years, and I had a ton of experiences that were great experiences, but I had no idea how to tell them or frame it in a way that made sense to potential employers for the jobs I would apply for. So not understanding that led to a lot of rejections. It led to a lot of dead ends. Um, and led to a lot of doors being closed simply because I had no idea how to adequately say, I did this thing in the military and here's why that matters. And here's why that will make me good in this current job. So learning how to tell your story is paramount. And I find that recruiters don't often give you feedback from interviews, post-interview feedback. I find that in my personal experience, if you are doing any sort of job hunt, man, you have to do it with somebody who's going after the same, like a similar job function as you. You have to have somebody in the fight with you, somebody who you can do mock interviews with, somebody who you can do post-interview debriefs with, somebody where you can let them know, it's like, hey, I got a weird feeling when I answered this question this way, like, how do you think I should have answered it? Or I wanna talk about this thing I did this way, does this make sense to you? Or would this make sense to you? You have to have somebody there who can act as a sounding board to really help you out because, again, recruiters aren't always going to be able to give you feedback. So just finding those resources to help you understand how to better tell your story, that's paramount. And how can people reach out to you to learn more about your career and if they want to have a chat with you to help them with their job search? Yeah, they can find me. My name is Sean Washington, Sean, S-H-O-N, last name Washington, like the state or the actor, Denzel. And I work at a company called Intosa. 
So if you just type in Sean Washington and LinkedIn, search people, and then under companies, type in Tulsa, one word, that should pull me up almost immediately. All right. And uh, favorite Denzel Washington movie? <laughs> oh, man. I feel like everybody says Training Day. But I feel like my favorite Denzel Washington movie is this movie called Devil in a Blue Dress. It's with Denzel Washington. It's with Don Cheadle. It's like a noir movie. It takes place in, I want to say, either post-World War One or post-World War Two. It's just a really awesome, hard-boiled detective story. And Don Cheadle's finest role in that is, or finest acting performance is also in that movie. So if you haven't seen it, definitely check it out. Devil in the Blue Dress. And that's our Denzel plug for today. <laughs> yeah, I hope he hears this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Thanks again, Sean, and have a great weekend. Yeah, thanks, Max. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this content valuable, here's three ways I can help you achieve your career goals for free. First, subscribe to this podcast as I post two episodes a week. Number two, leave a five-star review as this helps build the credibility of the show so we can gain access to more influential people to interview and bring those lessons to you to help elevate your career. And number three, connect with me on social media. There's a link in the show notes for you to click on that compiles all my active social media accounts, making it easy for you to find me and connect with me. Thank you again for listening. And until next time, Thank you.